My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support our thoughts and our ministry and our time here is to follow our Instagram page like our Facebook page, of course, as well. And you can listen to this online broadcast and make comments underneath any social media channel, YouTube, Facebook, uh, or online platform that you listen to. You can listen to this, uh, you can, excuse me, you can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 for this podcast, and this will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well. So every Thursday, we're coming together for this broadcast and giving a live and better understanding of the material that we are covering. So we call this a deeper dive. So if you can, uh, and you have been following us online, you will remember that we are in a series called Atlas of the Heart. And today we are taking a biblical view, looking at a biblical view of emotions created through uncertainty. So I'm joined today with Shreya Bonner and Jake Flug, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Shreya. Good evening. Thank you. So we need to be centered, get centered a little bit because uh, leading into this, we're like, when do we actually hit start video? And of course I was late to the game. I was the last one. Usually I'm the first one. So, uh, I apologize for that. All right. So we are covering this topic, Atlas of the Heart. This is based off of Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart. We're using this as a structure only where we're just walking through her assessment of emotions created in certain life situations, like places that we go like this week when we are uncertain. But I do have a question leading out tonight. And my first question, before we read any scripture, I think that this is a very profound subject that needs to be answered for the world. Where does pectin come from? (laughs) Because I've always thought that pectin, because Sheree was canning today, jarring jam. And I always thought that pectin came from pig fat. How many of you thought that pectin came from pig fat? I thought that pectin came from pig fat. So Jake, where does pectin come from? Just fruit, but it's the, uh, it's gelatin that it comes from pig ground up pig. So gelatin comes from pig fat or ground up pig. Well, marrow skin fat. I think it's just like connective tissues. Yeah. Jews wouldn't like that. Correct. No. They couldn't use gelatin. So jelly is gelatin. So jelly. what? Jelly. 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 Does that have gelatin? I believe so. That's why it's called jelly, right? No. Jelly uses pectin also. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> you strain the fruit out. Jelly, you leave the fruit in. Wait, no, I got it backwards. Jelly, you strain the fruit out. Jam, you leave the fruit in. Thank you I, for that clarification. My life is now complete. All right. We're going to get comments now. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Let's read 
Mark 4, starting in verse 35 through 41. That's where we're going to be at tonight. Later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose and waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was swamped. But Jesus was in the rear of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? He got up and gave orders to the wind, and he said to the lake, silence, be still. The wind settled down, and there was a great calm. Jesus asked them, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Overcome with awe, they said to each other, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So kind of a short passage of scripture that we're going to talk a little bit about. Usually that scripture is used for why don't you have enough faith in the midst of your fear or have no fear? And there's a lot of Christian cliches that we use in the midst of somebody's emotion. So somebody has emotion of fear. They have an emotion of anger. They have an emotion of overwhelm. They have an emotion of dread or even excitement. And the positive emotions in Christianity are always affirmed. Or really, there's only one response that we can have because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that we are saved and forgiven, and we live this whole life in Jesus, that the only response to life that we can have is joy. And everything else, all other emotion um, is wiped clean. You really can't have depression, or you couldn't have stress or anxiety or different emotional responses in the Christian world. The only other response, or excuse me, the only other emotion that we can really have in Christian life is shame. And so there's either joy or shame. There's no other room in Christianity in modern times uh, for all of the other emotions. Now we know that this is not a practice of the church long-term because the church actually had people that would be professional mourners or grievers or such things. So we know that we know that there's room in ancient Christianity. There was room in ancient Christianity or even probably 500 years ago or less, there was room for more emotion and emotional expression and so the only kind of anger that you can have is righteous anger. But what is that? We don't know. So we just are making a judgment call on what is actually righteous or unrighteous. And Jesus had righteous anger because he flipped over tables. But if I walked into a store and flipped over tables, that would be kind of weird. And I would probably be arrested. So, <clears throat> so that's not really righteous anger um, or declaring something righteous or unrighteous. We're going to talk a little bit, little bit about that later about righteous and unrighteous moral, amoral emotions or immoral emotions. So in Christianity, the reason why we're doing this study is to debunk the idea that really all you can have is joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I think that that's true, that we're to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And that is a positive and very valid and needed in many times emotion. But there's also room for other emotions. There is room for fear. 
there is room for anger. There is room for sadness. There is room for dread. And like tonight in our uncertainty, when we're faced with fear or we're faced with a movement of, I don't know which way to go, or is everything going to work out? Okay. Or if I make this decision, is it going to blow up in my face? Uh, It depends on how big of a risk taker you are, I guess. Um, I was talking to my brother today and I'm the kind of personality that hangs myself off a cliff with my fingernails barely hanging on. And my brother's the one who's Amazoning me the rope from his house. So we're <laughs> two different kinds of risk takers. My brother takes other kinds of risks and I seem, I, I seem to take risks that some people think I dangle myself off a cliff, maybe a little too much. But when we're faced with risk or or we're faced with uncertainty, whatever our level of uncertainty is, it's different for everybody. And it doesn't make you better or not better if you know certain things or don't know certain things or you're certain about something or uncertain about another thing. It's just who you are and how you were raised and your environment, nature, nurture, all those things create an emotional response in uncertainty. So some people in their uncertainty go, I got this. Other people in their uncertainty go, and they just stall out and they become so overwhelmed that they can't make a decision. Now, I think that that's a challenge is when we can't make a decision because we're so overwhelmed. We're going to talk about that actually a little bit later, what that actually is. But In tonight's study in uncertainty, we're going over these emotions, stress. Are you going to put the slide up for me? Oh, look at you. Places we go when we are uncertain or things are too much. So we're faced with the decision right or left. Have you ever been on a trail like this? I've been on lots of trails like this. And when you're out on a trail and especially when there's snow and you're on your, your cross country skis and things are a little whitened up and you can't see the trail uh, very clear. Uh, Here is a sign you come across. You can go right or left and who knows which way to go. Um, Hopefully follow the river down. That's what I always say. Follow the river down. But if there is no river or direction or the sun and the moon and everything is either under clouds or like here in Oregon, you really don't have any pinpointed, I guess, uh, galactic is that the word galactic or interstellar huh landmarks landmarks or sky or moon (laughs) or stars to follow so we become uncertain of where to go and those emotions are stress being overwhelmed anxiety worry avoidance excitement dread fear or vulnerability So here's a couple that we're going to go over tonight. We're going to kind of reduce those down because we really don't have time to go over all of them, but we're going to cover stress, overwhelm, anxiety, and vulnerability. And we're going to talk about the biblical ideas or the biblical stories that we have about those. So let's talk about some stress. What do we know about stress from the Bible? That it is a thing that people (laughs) experience. Yeah, that's a real experience. Yeah. I think if we if we look at stress being the in, 
environmental pressure, um, mm. unpredictability, lack of control. Yeah. Maybe we just came out of exodus and I don't think, I don't know if stress or overwhelm is, is quite the same. Um, we can talk about motivation a little bit later, but, but overwhelmness is the overpowering of stress, right? Um, yeah. I would say overwhelming is like the next level stress. Yeah. So totally. it's actually the stalling out, like you're stressed and then you stall out would be overwhelming or yeah. overwhelmed. Yeah, uh, Brene Brown says stressed is being in the weeds, overwhelmed is being blown. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you're totally, totally just, just buried out of it and probably not functioning at a high capacity. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I can, un- I can function under stress. I can't function to the regular capacity when I'm overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, gosh, I, there's lots of stories that, that involve stress being like Nehemiah rebuilding the wall and the stress of mm-hmm. the stress of the, uh, the outside rulers speaking in. I think that's a good one that it was, he was in the weeds with it, but he was not overwhelmed by it. Mm. Um, I think when we see the stress move to overwhelmness is like uh, Elijah and the prophets and the prophetess of Balaam, where after after he sets fire to the altar and kills everybody, then he he runs back and hides because he just mm-hmm. can't handle and deal with it. Mm-hmm. Right. So he had this stress situation and it overwhelmed him so much that he had to he had to hide. Like an angel had to feed him for three days before he could even walk. Correct. Yeah, that's right. that's that's the overwhelmedness. Yeah, I think when the the story, the narrative of Jonah definitely shows a stress where he tries to run. So he's probably has fear in there as well, uh, which is a primary emotion. Yeah. I think that though the stress of actually accomplishing what God has at, what had asked him to accomplish, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and what, certain people groups did to others actually walking into a community saying, you know, repent and believe in God, you know, it's like, turn it's or like burn. yeah, turn or burn. Um, that would have stressed anybody out. So running away might be the expression or the, the outward expression of being overwhelmed or, or being stressed. And in our story tonight, I mean, the disciples would have been dressed out on that boat. And many of them were fishermen. Like they, they knew how to navigate the waters. Um, So there's, I think there's probably a moment where it was like, Oh, this is fine. We can handle it. This might be a little much. Oh, we're way out of our depths here. Right. And if you would put that scripture back up, let's, let's deconstruct a little bit. Because I think people misinterpret this scripture a lot. We're focused on the storm. We're focused on 
the, the boats, the gale force winds arose, waves crashed and look at this miracle um, that Jesus is going to perform. Why are you frightened? Don't you have faith? Uh, the winds and the waves obey him. So we see the miracle of Jesus and that's not really the point of the story. Um, even the people that are afraid, that's not really the point of the story. Um, the reason why Jesus actually says, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? It wasn't the fact that there were winds and waves and that Jesus made them the winds and waves obey and calm down. The reason why they didn't have faith is every time you had a, a water body of water that would be termed a sea or a larger, larger sized water, like a lake versus just a river or a pond or something like that. Every time you had a deeper sea or a deeper body of water, the Jews actually believed that and ancient Jews believed that the demons or the, the, the evil lived in the deep. And so Jesus walking on water actually is Jesus putting Satan or the demons or evil under his feet. And so he's actually a, a positional authority over what they would deem evil. So the point of this would be the winds and the waves and Sheree in our pre-work actually said it best is that Jesus um, had control of even the demons and the devil um, in this, in this story. So Jesus was a higher authority than the deep or evil or Satan. So this idea of why are you frightened? Don't you have faith? in Christ, that he is the ultimate authority that even the demons and Satan obey him. So just like our story of Exodus, where we saw that the river, um, the body of water split the sea, the Red Sea rather split in two, that is a control that God had control over the evil. And there was a war of of good and evil and spiritual war going on in that story more than just a splitting of water and people walking across. So there's more to this story than just Jesus calming winds and waves. And that's what, so, but we use that scripture a lot of times in Christianity where we, where people get afraid or they get uncertain or they, they get scared. And we say things like, well, you know, just have more faith where's your faith? And I think that's yeah. a really, that's a really poor response to the sad some, response. It's a sad response. I mean, if you're in a boat in the middle of a storm, being afraid is an absolutely reasonable response. Right. I mean, I have been in a storm in a boat. <laughs> I was, I was in Malaysia in 1995 and I was on a like a 1930s barge in the middle of the uh headed over to um Kopenyan Island in Thailand actually that's where I was headed and I we got into a storm and it was a rip-roaring storm to the point that water was coming onto the boat and for sure I was going to die 
I knew it. I was so <laughs> sopping wet by the time I got off that boat. We were laying down like, you know, a row of sardines on the boat, um, just lined up with like little, you know, sleep numbers. And so we were all just laying on this first level. And then there was a second level where uh, the, 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 the uh, citizens, the native people, uh, they were on the boat. So all the foreigners were on the first level, the native people were on the second level and we were soaked. So if you can imagine what they felt on the second level uh, was just unbelievable. It was scary. It is scary. It is scary. Yep. Storms are scary. Natural response, right? It's a natural response. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about a little bit more of being overwhelmed. I think that there's a great story in Job of being overwhelmed, where pretty soon so much happens to you that you just sit. Yep. You're like, peace out. I'm done. I'm sitting. I don't know what to do. Yep. For the next what 40, 48 chapters. Yeah, exactly. It's a long time to sit. 48 chapters of Job. Takes like a week to read that book. And Job's sitting the whole time. The whole time. Can't do it. I mean, he has reason to be overwhelmed, definitely. Well, sure. Yes. Um, Other overwhelmed times. Think of Jesus in the garden. That's an overwhelming experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, comes out of the overwhelmness quickly. And what does it say? It's something with blood, like sweats to des- blood. So to describe that. Yeah. Emotionally. So emotionally distraught. There's a sweat in the blood. So there's so much stress. And I think that's more of a metaphor but it could be the capillaries actually breaking on his head could be, or around his eyes. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, scientific reason. Crying, or, crying so hard. Maybe his eyes were yeah. burst, burst in flames. But uh, really that, like that's a bigger versus just yeah. the blood itself. We can, we can try to, uh, put a medical diagnosis on it, but I don't think that's right. what that's for. I don't think it's, it's just to show that he was so overwhelmed that he was bursting with blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Moses is overwhelmed when he strikes the rock the third time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like just um, upset. I'm done. I'm just completely done. Right. I think there's a couple of times where Paul is pretty distraught to the point that he's overwhelmed when he continually says I'm in chains. Um, That's almost like a, like a stress. And then at some point in one of his writings, he starts calling for his friends. Yeah. It's a, it's a a overwhelmed is a resignation to your stress. Right. But at some point he's saying, He's saying, uh, I'm in chains. I'm preaching the gospel, even though I'm in chains. And then he says, hey, okay. I'm in chains. Can you come visit me, please? Bring a ja- <laughs> Can you bring me a jacket? Yeah. Bring me my coat. <laughs> bring me my parchments. Bring me a coat, please. 
please? Like, I need something. Yeah. So the idea of being overwhelmed is the next step of, of stress. Uh, in Brene Brown's book, it says, basically, it's an unfolding faster than my nervous system and psyche can manage. Mm-hmm. So it's something that is life is moving so fast right. around you. It feels like that you have no control whatsoever. Have you guys ever felt that way? Today? Yeah. <laughs> Today. <laughs> I sat all day. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything, like that description of life moving faster than your nervous system can handle. Like, I know exactly what that feels like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then trying to recall a specific instance, like, it's almost like my brain is like, no, nah, we don't want to go back there. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I remember when I was adopting Natalia and uh, the, the embassy, the whole Thai, the country and of Thailand was literally shut down because of the red shirt riots back in 2009. And it was unbelievable what we were having to deal with and go through. And it wasn't normal. And I was, and I had been, I had traveled a lot by that point and I was overwhelmed. Like I could not figure out how to get my child out of the country. She had been adopted from the Thai government into our hands, but then to get her out of the country, I needed a visa. I needed an American uh, United States pass, a United States visa in her Thai passport. And I couldn't get it because the embassy was shut down. And I remember trying to go get it or trying to figure out when the embassy was going to open. And we had gone through so many things and like navigating through riots and basically a civil war. And I just, fell apart. I remember walking out on the road and I started screaming like a crazy person <laughs> at God, <laughs> like just using all kinds of expletives and just screaming that God had to figure this out because I couldn't figure it out. And obviously God figured it out because Natai is here <laughs> with us. So <laughs> that was very overwhelming to me. Okay. Uh, an overwhelming time recently would be um, the mandate shut down of business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, definitely for us having to navigate multiple organizations, trying to figure out shutdowns and, and when, when it was announced um, mm. that feeling of, of sync. It was awful, awful, awful. I remember just walking out onto the sidewalk out in front of the Sherwood cafe and uh, while just pacing on the sidewalk. Just I think we're, we were Epic Minimums when it was announced, but yeah. 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 Uh, but it was literally overwhelming. It was an overwhelming time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think David was overwhelmed a lot in the Psalms. Like he should Showed a lot of overwhelm. He's a very emotional person. Very. Is that okay? It's okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. And then, 
anxiety. My I example th- for that is Peter. Go for it. I, well, I've been talking a lot, so go for it. No, he well, so have I. Sharia, give us your give us your anxiety. <laughs> okay. Um, do you do you want me to talk about Peter? Yeah, talk about Peter's anxiety. I think the way I see Peter acting in anxiety is um just jumping in before having an idea of what's actually happening totally totally like just so uncomfortable with whatever feelings may or may not be coming up that the only solution is to cut somebody's ear off yeah he's fire fire ready aim yep yeah definitely fire ready aim yeah he's definitely stressed anxiety going to jump in and do the things and say the things (laughs) and try and mitigate all of the feelings all all the damage damage control afterwards yeah as he's sitting there with an ear in his hand (laughs) i was aiming for his neck yes (laughs) (laughs) totally any other anxiety in scripture that we can see i think that our my biggest example of anxiety is actually saul And handling of life, but also um, I think he became such an anxious person that it, it went more towards, he became a very paranoid person in his anxiety. And so when it said that God handed him over to his, to his turmoils or to the, like to the demons, basically, it was a very, God left him. Yeah. A very mm-hmm. sad moment of of him just going over into his into his anxiety and his, his paranoia. Yeah. And um in the book there's a quote by Elizabeth Gilbert that she wrote Eat Pray Love and also has a fantastic TED talk about about uh, muse but also motivation. Mm-hmm. And what she writes on anxiety is you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. You're afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. let that one sit for a while. Cause that's really good. So vulnerability, when this emotion is presented in Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the heart, it's presented in a emotional response. And I think that there's two nuances to vulnerability. One nuance is in our control and another is not in our control. And so when we are in an uncertain moment, a lot of that vulnerability is not in our control. So there's this, there's a presentation of vulnerability. I'm going to be vulnerable with you now. And I'm going to tell you things about my personal life, right? Or NAAA, some of the recovery groups, they start out and they say, hi, my name's Sam and I'm a alcoholic. I'm a, I'm a drug addict. I'm a you know, whatever the, whatever the, the reason is that they're in recovery. 
they'll state that as a purposeful presentation of vulnerability that equalizes everybody in the room. We're all the same, uh, but also just to share and state the obvious. This is why I'm here. This is why I need this group. This is why I'm sharing with you today. So there's a presentation of vulnerability that is within our control, but in uncertain moments, there's a lack of control. So that's when we kind of feel stripped down, that we feel emotionally naked or we feel uh, like, like something was shared or something was done that I didn't want necessarily to like be shared or done. And so that emotional response to uncertainty, I think would be more the nuance of the out of control. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have an example of that one? Go for it, Trey. I mean, just the example you gave, like when, when somebody shares something that is yours to share and you weren't ready right. for it to be shared. Well, I meant biblical examples. You know? Oh, oh, oh <laughs> okay. Do you, do you want to be vulnerable with this no. right now? <laughs> sorry. 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 <laughs> You're right. like, oh, I was wondering, like, why was that funny? I don't understand. Now I understand why you <laughs> had this like take back, like, oh. You want me to share? Go ahead, Sharia. <laughs> Time for you to be vulnerable. Um, oh, this comes from the pre-work, but the woman who was caught in adultery. Yes. I imagine she wasn't ready for that to be shared. No, no, she wasn't. And in that story, Jesus writes in the ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you can't prove my take on this from scripture, or but it makes take. it. Yeah. You can't take anyone's take from scripture because you really don't know, but she was taken out of the place that she was in obviously caught in adultery. So the chance of her wearing very little clothes is probably great. <laughs> um, she was taken in the middle of like basically a crowd of people and Jesus kneels down in front of her and writes in the dirt. So my guess is no matter what's written in the dirt, if you, if the hermeneutic of the, the story behind the story or the, the story that is bigger than the narrative itself is that Jesus was covering her shame, that Jesus was actually distracting the crowd from her shame by writing in the dirt, just by covering her shame, like just, Hey, look over here. So that idea of vulnerability could be seen in that version of that story that, uh, you know, I think Paul wore his vulnerability in his body. Yes. There was something wrong with him. Wrong. Something wrong with him. I, yeah, wrong. That's I mean, a bad word, but uh he was stoned a couple times. 
he was hobbled like they broke his legs mm-hmm. um what else was that like shipwrecked twice uh fought wild beasts mm-hmm. fought wild beasts and so the chances of him just being completely physically destroyed yeah and in one of the letters i think in, in the galatians it says look at look at these letters that i write with my own hand look how big they are that i have to do it mm-hmm. yeah so um, either he couldn't see yeah or he couldn't write he couldn't write yeah. yeah and so he wore his vulnerability on his body right Yeah. I think that the entire book of revelation is John's vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Like he is talking about things, hoping that people would understand the truth of what is happening in his society. Mm -hmm. And he's using images and pictures and he's actually telling what's happening in current day with an apocalyptic beasts and bowls and fire and pools and angels and dragons and harlots and all, I mean, all these like images, but yet he's actually bringing huge accusation Mm -hmm. to the Roman government. And so the whole idea of just presenting that way is showing a, you know, bringing at that amount of accusation, like even 666, he's accusing in the, you know, the, the antichrist is, you know, here and coming. That was Caesar Nero. So Neron Kazar is 666 in Hebrew numerology. So even just stating that or doing that is a huge amount of vulnerability. Well, let's go on to our next section because we've taken a long time on that one thing. So this is okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's levels of, of, of emotion that we need to talk about. And I think this, this is an important aspect of emotion because there is a reaction to emotion and then there's the emotion itself. And so we can have a state of emotion excuse me, we can have a state of emotion where we might feel vulnerable. We feel fear, feeling overwhelmed or feeling stressed or feeling anxious. That is a state of emotion. But then we have like an embodiment of that emotion and you can be a stressed out person, you know, or a anxious person. So there is an actual embodiment of that we see a lot of times visually, maybe with fidgeting or moving too fast or sharp movements or, or whatever, physically talking really fast, you know, like speaking so fast that you can't understand sentences put together could be a sign. I'm not saying that is a sign, but could be a sign that the person has an anxious trait or they're in a stressed trait. Some people live in an anxious trait their whole life. Um, their heart is pounding at a level that others don't pound and their mind thinks faster than, you know, other people and they like burn fat more than, more than the slow, 
slower mover people like me. I don't know. But, uh, but people that are in a trait of anxiety, it is, it is an embodiment of that anxiety that, and I'm not saying that this would happen, but another, another aspect of emotion, you have, you have a state of emotion, you have the trait of emotion, but then you have the disorder of emotion and the disorder of emotion is much different. That is where we're responding to our emotional states um, hard, where we might feel sadness into a deeper depression. We might feel a grieving into depression. We might feel a fear into an anxiety disorder where we're afraid of multiple things all at the same time. And that turns into more of an anxious disorder. Most of the time, and I'm not saying that this is all the time, but most of the time people can determine and, and diagnose those things with, uh, because there might be a chemical or a physiological um, issue that's happening within the mind and the body. So it could be as simple as food and sleep. It could be as complex as serotonin levels in the brain that would need um, some modulation and some control through antidepressants and anti-anxiety. So <clears throat> Uh, medications. So it could be really simple. Um, I'm not getting sleep. I have sleep apnea or I have, and that's a little more complex, but that I have lack of sleep or I'm not eating properly. Therefore I'm under anxiety all day, or there's something else happening. And either one, I guess, could be called a disorder because it's, it's an anxiety that is a more of a medical issue or a stress that's more of a medical issue versus a state or a trait. It's very easy though, I think, in my experience with people to say, when we say I'm depressed because the church's and society's rejection of stress, anxiety, or our rejection of depression, we think that depression's bad so we immediately have to do something about it versus letting it a grieving process run its course. So I think that there are cases where uh, medication and, and psych, uh, a psychologist, a therapist needs, you need to come under their care. And there are other times where you're just depressed and you have very many reasons to feel and experience that depression. I would just encourage all of us who is ever listening and whoever will listen to this in the future. There's two things I want to say. First is there's nothing wrong with going to counseling. There's nothing wrong. And I would encourage that. I would encourage that for everybody Every, at some point, just hit up your therapist. It's good work. <clears throat> Number two is or excuse me, uh, counseling is okay. And there, and there's nothing wrong with it. There is nothing wrong with feeling emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with having an emotional or mental disorder. There's, it's not right or wrong. It just is. 
And so the idea of medication, it's okay to go to a therapist and to your doctor and get prescribed uh, medication for depression or anxiety or panic attack disorder or any kind of phobia that you might be experiencing. It's okay. And I would encourage you to do it. I would encourage you to go and I want you to go and I want you to be assessed. Number two, anybody that tells you that being depressed is wrong, anybody that tells you that medication for depression is wrong is not your friend. They're not looking out for your best interest and they don't, they don't know anything about medication and what that's for. And so I'm not a doctor and I'm not a therapist, but I want to encourage you. I know many pastors who have said, just go off your medication and have faith in God. Just go off your medication and just seek the Lord. Lean on Jesus. That is the worst advice. And we are not medical professionals. So I'm going to tell you, lean on Jesus and lean on your therapist and your doctor. And I just want to encourage that those two things, those just embody those, just know that you're, you're encouraged and that it's okay to go seek that kind of help. And I want you to seek that kind of help. So that's, that's my little shtick about emotional disorders. It's very easy to, and difficult at the same time to assess them and to diagnose them. And it's an easier process than it used to be to, uh, to do that. So I would encourage you to do that. Is that fair to say you guys, can I say all that? Yes. <laughs> Good. Anything to add to that? I spoke pretty strongly. A, it's, we have a misconception of disorder and that all disorder is just a rearrangement of the order. And right. So, and so it might be disordered to one person, but not disordered to the other. Right. So it's contextual. Um, and disorder is like a bad word. Disorder like is a bad word, but that's exactly what it is. It's more simple than it right, is right. medical. That disorder is just a it's out of place. Right. So we talk about um, when does emotion become quote unquote sin, and it's when our reaction doesn't match the doesn't right. match the emotion. When that's that's a disordered thinking as well. Right. Well, I would say that the Christian world has often said that a positive trait is moral and a, excuse me, a positive emotion is moral and a negative emotion is immoral. Well, that's easy to like divide, like fear, anger, um, grieving, depression, um, sadness, all of that is immoral. And on this side, joy, excitement, um, elation, uh, happiness, laughter, all of that is positive emotion and moral. So that's, that's kind of the division that 
we have in the church have, and, and this side of things, the immoral, you, you need to just lean on Jesus and get over it. So we come up with very dangerous platitudes, like, you know, there's nothing to fear, just fear the Lord. What did you say the other day, Jake, about that fear, uh, about fearing the Lord? The only fear, the only fear you can, you said, the only fear you should have is the fear of the Lord. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yes, that is. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, that's what you said to me the other day. The only fear that you should, that's a platitude that Christians say. Yes. It's just, just, it was, it was in jest, I'm sure, tongue in cheek. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was telling in cheek that you were saying it in, in relation to this topic. I, I do think that with our classification of moral and immoral emotions, it is only, excuse me, only people in position of power are allowed to have emotions. Yes. And those emotions have to match the power that they're in to create that dilemma and that, that cycle. Mm -hmm. And so anger if expressed by a person in power is a is a moral anger yeah fear if expressed by a person in power is especially casting fear making fear is is a moral obligation or duty and so it has to do, I think, with motivation that um, if emotion in the church, if emotion is used for the purpose of control, it is moral. Right. And if it is out of control, it is immoral. Right. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Oof. And that's rough to hear because yeah. I am, I'll admit that. I've probably preached a couple of sermons in my 25 years that way. I'm sure. I'm sure we all have said things, Tilly. Yeah. Because emo- emotions are amoral. And we really need to embody that, that emotions are amoral. They're not immoral. Primary emotions, there's nothing right or wrong about primary emotions. They're not, they're not sinful or righteous that just are primary emotions are just, they exist and they might be shaped by your influence. They might be shaped by your experiences. The, the, the nurture of things as a child, you might have an emotional trait like we talked about or a state and a trait that just came from your upbringing. That's not neither righteous or unrighteous. I think the, the expression, the, the aggress- aggressiveness, or I guess the, impa- the passivity, the aggressiveness or the passivity behind the primary emotion of like anger. Anger is amoral, but when we get aggressive or passive aggressive in anger, that becomes immoral. So it's our expression. Did I say that correctly? I think so. So, the, so anger is amoral. But the passive or aggressive expression of that primary emotion makes it immoral. And so we can, we can have anger 
and that's a neutral um, expression. In a secondary uh, emotion, like when my daughter's out at track, like she was this afternoon, and she's getting ready for the race, and she's getting all psyched up. I mean, she loves to be around her friends, and she's with that group of people, and that group of people are like, good job, good job, good job, getting all psyched up. I guess getting psyched up or getting excited over something that you're actually afraid of losing, right? So you don't want to lose. You don't want to come in last place. You don't even want to be second because of course that's the first loser, right? So you want to be first or you want to just do the very best that you can. And no matter what you say, (laughs) just get out there and do the very best that you can, Natalia. Just get out there and just try your best. (laughs) It's okay. Whatever you do, we are proud of you no matter what. Dad, I want to win. I want to be first. (laughs) So, so the fear is I'm going to lose, come in second, or the real fear is I'm going to be that kid that is just lagging in the back and finishing, you know, a minute after everybody else. So we get ourselves psyched up. That's a secondary emotion. The, the, the fear is the primary, my excitedness to overcome the fear is the secondary. So anger, fear, um, joy. Those are all pretty much primary emotions. Fear, loss, anchor, grief, sadness. Yeah. Thank you. Well, sadness, joy. Okay. Sadness. Could, yeah. I guess the flags sa- sadness could be a secondary could be because there's a loss. So you have a loss. Loss could be the feeling of loss could be the primary and the sadness is the secondary to embody the loss. I don't know. We'll have to look that up a little more, but we engage in, we engage in emotions, secondary emotions. Like when you have to go talk to somebody that you really don't want to talk to about a subject that you don't want to talk to them about. So we get ourselves psyched up. Hey, I want to meet with you. Let's meet for lunch. Let's get together. And then you sit there and you practice before you get there, <laughs> you like repeat in the mirror. So what I want to tell you today is you're a jerk. <clears throat> and I just want to like, let you know that. And so you get yourself all secondary psyched up. And it's one of those, I guess, uh, I guess when the Bible says, think on these things, right? Think on the virtuous things. That's also in the, in the positive sense, getting psyched up too. That's a secondary like activity. Hmm. So, so all this to say is emotions are amoral in its, in their primary and secondary, really in secondary states as well. They're just all amoral and there's nothing right or wrong, righteous, unrighteous about them. Our expression of aggression, our expression of passive passivity, our expression of attack, our expression of even like tearing down or sarcastically tearing somebody down, cutting somebody down to make yourself feel better. All of that is uh, morally charged. Huh? Morally charged. Morally charged. Thank you for the right terminology. our, Our affect becomes morally charged. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do with our emotion our affect right is what well i think for our last couple of handful of 
15 minutes. <laughs> I would really like to compare because we talked about. That's, ne- un- that's next week, actually. <laughs> well, yeah, sorry. Sorry. I would like to juxtapose um, these two ideas. So we have uncertainty, which is okay. We're all going to be faced with uncertainty. And we're going to have emotions based on that uncertainty. We're going to have overwhelm, stress, dread, anxiety, vulnerability. We're going to have all of those emotions. And like we said, that's okay. They're amoral. There's nothing right or wrong about them. I think we need to to practice stoicism where we control our reactions, where we have stimulus, pause, and then respond. I think a lot of us struggle with the pause, stimulus, pause, respond. And so we have a little practice that comes from the Huberman podcast. Andrew Huberman does um, a podcast on the parasympathetic breathing. So if you struggle, so Jake's going to, Jake's going to actually illustrate this for us. <laughs> so why don't you just go ahead and take this topic? Just, just this last, uh, uh, just to conclude the idea of stimulus pause. So what could help us a physiological action that can help us pause? Um, well, there's like two, I think that, that are very helpful right now, especially in our context. Um, one is mindfulness. Yeah. And actually I'll, I'll, I think, I think I'll just say just mindfulness and marry those two together. And that mindfulness is the, is the slowing down and thinking about situations and those around you. And you do that through the practice of meditation or, or mindfulness or with the disconnection and focus on body and breathing and just being centered in space and time. Um, that, that slowness, hey Paisley, that slowness will allow for that pause, that emotional response, emotional action, your slow pause, and then your respond. So in mindfulness, the, the Vedics that practice mindfulness, there's two, if I can interject, there's there's two thoughts to mindfulness. It's complete awareness. So I am aware that this pen is in my hand. And not only am I aware that the pen is in my hand, I know what I'm doing with the pen. And I also can feel the ridges on the pen as I slide my finger right here. And I feel that part of the pen. And so it's an attuneness to awareness where we slow our mind to the point where we realize what is around us and what is happening and why it's happening and just kind of take a step back or step out for a Mm -hmm. moment where we feel more where we're actually experiencing more emotion by, by, by lowering your senses. Yeah. By lowering the stimulus and raising your sensitivity. Right. You can become more mindful and present 
in the, in the environment that you're in. So the number two, the Buddhists, what the Buddhists do with this in their practice of the Dharma is they actually attempt as they raise their sensitivity and lower stimulus, right? They're raising their awareness and controlling the result of the stimulus. So when they practice the Dharma, they're working on the mind control of like pain sensors, the mind control of fear responses, the mind control of anger responses. So they're at the point of like the Dalai Lama would say that, that negative emotions can be controlled to the point that negative emotions can be controlled, including pain. And so this is why you'll see some Buddhist monks do what they do with fire or they've done what they've done with just pain. Um, they have controlled the mind over the body to the point that their sensitivity actually raises their awareness to control the reaction to the sensor. Um, so you, So it's proven that you can control certain emotions through mindfulness, yep. which is crazy to think about, but it's, I, think I'm, I think that's a level that I'm, that you're not, we're not there to, yet, but not, not get there. <laughs> we're not uh, there yet. <laughs> Sharia might be there, but <laughs> I think a lot of, a lot of what mindfulness does is center on your, on your breathing. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially in the guided exercises, what you do is you focus on, the up expansion and the making smaller through your breath. And um, we can talk about the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve that controls your, your sensory all over your body, but um, how you stimulate that and to calm yourself down but also, I don't know if you ever had a cramp while you're running in your side. That's more of a backfire into your nervous system. It's not really a lack of oxygen or anything. It's just you have to reset your nervous system, basically. And so if you breathe all the way in through your can nose. I, can I interject? Yeah. It's your involuntary nervous system. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Is, is your nervous system ever voluntary? Well, like your heart rate your yeah. immunity system, things like that. Gotcha. Is your involuntary parasympathetic system. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to make this like somewhat. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Understandable. Well, uh, yeah. But it's, it's not coming out well. I'm sorry. So you breathe all the way in your lungs. If all the ridges were, were just massaged out of your lungs, it would cover the size of a tennis court. Yeah. And so when you breathe in, you can actually stop all the way and then you can breathe in more and then you slowly let it out. You can reduce stress and anxiety by exhaling more than you inhale. Yeah. And so that's the purpose of it all. Um, Some other other ways to activate your parasympathetic and to, and to calm yourself down, especially in times of stress, overwhelm, anxiety, and worry is to drink water, to take a shower, 
to splash water on your face, your heart rate will reduce by 20% instantly. It is a, it is a human survival mechanism that we have installed in our bodies that if we touch water that we don't want to drown, our heart rate goes to almost zero and you can still survive. That's why there's drowning victims can survive. So the physiological sigh, that's what that's called. Uh, the breathing parasympathetic breathing, basically what that does by increasing your lung capacity, filling your lungs, then breathing again up farther, like filling it to the point of like no air can get in and then slowly reducing it out, activates your vagus nerve, your vagal system basically controls heart rate, blood pressure, immunity system, your involuntary nervous system. The things that you think you don't have control over, but you can do different practices to pause. And I think that's good. Like most therapists that I've been under tell us to practice a sense of mindfulness, whether you're Christian or not, it's not that there's no faith element to it, or there doesn't have to be a faith element to it. Even like a box breathing is a very good mindful exercise. We do down at the church sound healing and sound healing is a very auditory. Uh, there's actually vibration and there's of course, scientific proof that vibration does uh, change physiological responses. And so Having we, a certain, we as a church do not do the sound healing. There's a sound healing class there at the church. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fine. Building. Yeah. It's okay. at our church building. So we do it. We, we provide the facility for it and there's drums and there's bowls and there's all kinds of sound um, instruments that are used uh, for healing. And I find that to be it's beautiful. You know, some people think it's mystical. Some people think it's, you know, weird. I just find it good and it's, it's, it's enriching. Okay. We got to move on to our, our last thing. Cause we only have like five minutes. So I wanted to compare uncertainty and we have all these emotions and that's okay. And it's not moral or immoral. They're amoral. So Sharia. Just take our, take our 747 that we've been flying in the air and let's land it with wheels <laughs> on this last subject. Yeah. Uh, there's also the sin of certainty. Our good friend, Peter, Pete. Ends. Peter ends. There's the sin of certainty. So why don't you just kind of give us a synopsis of the sin of certainty and let's do a little comparison. Yeah. Um, a lot of what ends is talking about has to do with faith um, and how in evangelical circles, faith has kind of become uh, synonymous with certainty. I know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus existed and Jesus did all of these things and Exodus is a story that actually happened despite there being no historic evidence, you know. Right. Um, and so ends um, offers a picture of faith that looks like trust rather mm-hmm. than certainty. Um, 
and what that means for our emotional experience um, is that we have to live in the uncertainty. Um, and that's a lot harder. Certainty feels better, at least if it's what you're used to. And certainty doesn't uh, express the same emotion. No. No, I guess certainty would express things like confidence and happiness because I know the yeah. answer. I got it right. Or I, I, I am right. Right. <laughs> it's no wonder if we ended up with a church that only accepts joy as our only emotion because yeah. well, anything shit, else shame is too. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> joy and shame. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Certainty threatens trust. Mm -hmm. But knowing doesn't last. It shouldn't that last. Range. It doesn't. It hasn't in my lifetime. I'm almost 50 years old. And <laughs> I, I thought that I knew everything when I was when 20. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think people that believe in their way is the only way I'll say it that way. Yeah. Um, there's certainty or knowing shouldn't last. And I think that's a should contract. I'm okay with <laughs> that. If you're, if you're not certain, <laughs> if, if yeah. you're ever not certain, if you're ever, if you, if you never have doubted, if you have never not known, then there's, there's more issue there than, having doubted being uncertain and not knowing. Yeah. You've never learned how to trust. Right. There's no trust there. Um, Descartes, the, uh, the phrase is, I think therefore I am right. Mm -hmm. That's the popular mm -hmm. one, but that's only half of the half of the quote. And no one really hits the first part of it because I think it it's too scary for people. And it's, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. And so it is, it is doubting that makes us better humans. Yeah. So faith and doubt are kind of the same besides the same coin yeah they're the same they're in the same two shapes connected together right they're connected where you really can't have faith without doubt and doubt without faith and i would say that the the same might be true for uncertainty, certainty, where when I become more certain, that's actually the more uncertain I actually am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I become, when I, the more I know, actually the less I know. So <clears throat> I just know something about this. I know that pectin now is not made from pig fat, you know, <laughs> just because I, just because I know something doesn't mean that I have like 
I have the truth. The truth. Yeah. The fact. It's, fact. We'll say fact, not truth. No, actually, if I just you know philosophized in my head a little bit, I think that knowing has knowing to me has more to do with fact and truth has more to do for me with wonder hmm. wonder good. uncertainty excitement what excitement yeah so I, so like facts, I used to be so certain about the Bible and I knew from cover to cover that it was the historical word of God. You know, I could imagine, I could just picture some of my seminary profs just drilling that down my, into my head, you know, that I would come away and I would, I would have this Bible and we would baptize people in the name of the father, son, and here's the Bible, your Holy spirit. And we like hand, like literally handed them the Bible that God speaks directly right here and only here. And, and then all of a sudden I went through this, like, like deconstruction wonder, maybe even a little bit of uncertainty and like, wow, is all I, you know, was taught maybe might just be a, a proposition or might be just one side of things, you know, there's, and so then I began to lose control, I guess, of my certainty, but the more certain I became, the more uncertain I actually was. Good. Mm -hmm. so, all right. Let's end on that. Uncertainty. Uncertainty creates all kinds of emotions. And those emotions are, if I go back, stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, and vulnerability. And I pray that all of us would experience those all through the week, many, many times, because we will, and we are going to, and that we would practice stimulus, pause, and respond where we would respond in healthier ways because we know these emotions a little bit better and we're not afraid to have them and we're not pushing them away thinking they don't exist. They exist. They're okay. They are amoral. Let's practice now our reactions because of them and let's live in a little bit of uncertainty versus certainty because I think that that's a little bit maybe better place, more human place to live. All right. All right. Thank you. Amen. Hey. Awesome. All right. Thanks for joining us tonight and have a wonderful, wonderful night. Next week, compare how we compare through Atlas of the Heart. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.